Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're going to be talking about the judgment of a German court that just has the potential to blow up the whole European project. It really matters. And as a little extra, we're also going to be talking to Ed Miliband. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me talk. If you haven't heard it, Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd have a podcast called Reasons to be Cheerful, and it's all about new political ideas. And I think there's something about comparing the 2008 financial crisis with today, where I think there are more ideas out there about what sort of building back better might look like. And I also, you know, we're still in the midst of this crisis, obviously, but I I do get a sense, and certainly this is true when you look at the opinion polling, that, that people people don't think the best thing we can do is just go back to the way things were before. That conversation with Ed and Jeff is right at the end. But before that, I'm joined by Helen Thompson, our regular contributor, Adam Tooze, and Shaheen Vallet, who is a senior fellow at the German Council on Foreign Relations and was an advisor to Emmanuel Macron. And they're going to try and help me make sense of this judgment from the German Constitutional Court. It might not sound like it matters. I hope at the end of this conversation, like me, you'll be persuaded it really does matter. Last time we spoke to Adam, he left us with a cliffhanger, as he put it, which was the impending judgment of the German Constitutional Court about the legality of the European Central Bank's quantitative easing program from five years ago. And now we have that judgment. And it really was as exciting as Adam said it was going to be. I'm going to ask Shaheen maybe to have a go as concisely as you can to tell us what the court said before we get on to why it matters. What was the judgment? Well, it's a very long judgment, more than 100 pages in its conclusions, and essentially it says five things. It says that the QE program of the European Central Bank is illegal, it's ultra-virus. It says, secondly, that the German government and the German Bundestag have failed to control the ECB's program and their compliance with the German constitution. Third, it says that because the European Court of Justice has ruled that this program was legal, the European Court of Justice itself made an illegal, an illegal, an ultra-virus judgment. It gives uh, three months to the European Central Bank to provide a clear analysis and a new decision that explains the proportionality of the QE program with the stated objective of the inflation mandate of the ECB. And finally, it warns that if there is not such a clarifying proportionality assessment made by the European Central Bank, then the Bundesbank, the German Central Bank, would not be able to take part any longer in the ECB's QE program. So it's quite a far-reaching conclusion, but that raises, you know, behind these five points, quite fundamental political questions. 
Yeah, I mean, it's quite a blockbuster. And as you put it there, they're taking on everyone, right? So everyone has done something wrong. The ECB, the Bundesbank, the German government, and the European Court of Justice, all of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think behind these decisions, I think there are like three very fundamental uh, political questions that are being raised by the German Constitutional Court. The first one is one about the EU's legal and constitutional order. There was the belief that EU law was always taking precedence over national law and that the European Court of Justice decisions would be binding on any national courts, including national constitutional courts. And the German constitutional court is basically upending that settlement. The second, I think, very important point that the court makes when it talks about proportionality is that it accuses the ECB effectively of venturing outside of monetary policy and of making decisions and taking actions that have a bearing on economic policy more and more broadly. And in particular, it doesn't name them explicitly, but it hinges on suggesting that the ECB has basically violated implicitly the no bailout clause, Article 125 of the treaty, and Article 123 of the treaty, which is the prohibition of monetary financing. So the court doesn't say in explicit language that these articles were violated, but by questioning the proportionality assessment of the ECB, it questions whether the ECB is not infringed on these principles. And I think third, and maybe more importantly, and this is something that Adam has written about, it questions whether the ECB's independence should be as absolute because it actually asks the German government and the German Bundestag to actually exercise more control over the ECB. So I think that also upends a quite important consensus and actually a provision of the European treaty, which is that the European Central Bank is independent from national governments. And if it's accountable to anything, it's only accountable to the European Parliament. So Adam, we'll come on to that question about independence, but on the point that the judgment makes that the overreach was moving from monetary policy to economic policy, does that make sense? I mean, does that distinction make sense? I mean, it doesn't to a conventional mind, it has to be said, because, you know, most people would think that monetary policy works by way of its impact on the economy. But I think that distinction in the treaties which founded the ECB served two basic purposes. One was to demarcate a zone of responsibility that was for the nation states, and that was economic policy, as opposed to the federal institution, which was the ECB, which was supposed to do monetary policy. And secondly, the distinction satisfied the anxieties of German conservatives who wanted the ECB limited to a mandate of price stability, and so wanted to exclude the possibility that monetary policy in the Eurozone would be made with an eye to employment. And if employment belongs in the sphere of economic policy and the ECB is limited to monetary policy, that's another way, if you like, of nailing down this, this distinction. But it's, it's absurd, really, on its face, and has further lost meaning since the economic circumstances have been so radically transformed and our problem is no longer one of controlling inflation, but of ensuring that we don't slide into deflation. I mean, I think Adam's absolutely right. I think the issue is, though, if you say that the distinction is absurd, which I rather agree that it is, it also means that the treaty is absurd. It means in some sense that monetary union's absurd because monetary union, as it was constructed in the Maastricht Treaty, rested on that very sharp demarcation between monetary policy, which was going to be 
a matter for the EU with the qualification that that wasn't necessarily going to be all the EU's members and the rest of economic policy, not least fiscal policy, but also other matters as well, that where there was going to be no federal authority. Indeed, in the Maastricht Treaty, there wasn't even going to be fiscal rules once the monetary union had started. That was only added in through the Stability and Growth Pact after the Maastricht Treaty had been ratified. So I think that, in some sense, gets to the fundamental problem is that both the economic premise on which the European Union's monetary union was constructed is no longer supported by a great number of people who actually are in the monetary union. And yet, that was the monetary union that was legitimated by the treaties and that any reconstruction of the monetary union on different set of economic principles that eradicates that distinction has then got to be somehow democratically legitimated across the eurozone. Adam, do you want to come back on that? I think Helen forces the point with a kind of stringency of logic, which which makes perfect sense. It's just that advocates of the system, of course, believe in the fudge. So, I mean, you let this distinction stand for what it's worth because it buys you political space. And then you get on with actually doing conventional monetary policy at the Eurozone level, which is what the ECB was doing. And it's how, to come back to Shaheen's brilliant exposition of what the problem is, how the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, notionally the Supreme Court of Europe, waved this through. They basically said this is a difficult distinction to make. We think the ECB has done due diligence in trying to disentangle one from the other. And so we are not as lawyers going to intrude into the realm of arbitrating details of economic policy. And one of the shocking elements of the German constitutional court's judgment is that they have simply transgressed across that line and said, right, no, we have to make this call. So they've busted open what was, for the majority of the exponents of the euro system, simply a very convenient fudge. And Shaheen, what is your sense of the view of this from Paris? I mean, apart from anything else, for this court to be accusing people of having overstepped the mark and crossed from monetary policy to economic policy, seen from where I'm sitting, it looks like the court has itself, as Adam was hinting, stepped over quite a few lines, or it could be perceived that way. It's an incredibly political judgment, apart from anything else. Is that how it's seen in France? It is a very political judgment indeed, but there might be a silver lining to this judgment in the sense that, as Ellen said, it forces to end the fudge. It forces to end the fudge that has been governing the monetary union since Maastricht. And in some sense, you could actually view this ruling inadvertently as a ruling that opens up again The question not only about the financial constitution, as Adam calls it, with respect to the ECB and its mandate, but more deeply about whether it's not time for the monetary union to be endowed with a proper fiscal risk-sharing instrument, with a proper budget, and with proper sets of checks and balances and, and political accountability for the use of such a budget that would enable the transfers that were specifically forbidden by the Maastricht Treaty. So there might be something positive out of this judgment, is that it forces a conversation about the architecture of the monetary union, which we have been trying to evade for for the last 20 years. And I view the Franco-German agreement of yesterday on the embryo of a recovery fund as something that might actually be partly provoked by the German constitutional court ruling. Of course, the corona crisis and the need for some level of mutualization and risk sharing has has played a big part in this. But I think the German ruling is also forcing a change in in the nature of the debate in Germany. Adam? 
I think uh, one thing to reckon with is the logic of the judges themselves. I think I broadly speaking agree with Shahin's analysis of of its impact and it's the shove that it has delivered to especially the social democratic ministries in Berlin. After all, you know, in the dock, as it were, in Karlsruhe, in the German Constitutional Court, was State Secretary Kukis of the German Finance Ministry. So the, the court found against the German Finance Ministry now in its social democratic incarnation. And, and it's that same ministry which is pushing this deal that, that Shahin was alluding to, which Macron and Merkel put their names to yesterday, the 500 billion euro package. I think in terms of understanding the logic of the German justices themselves, it's quite important to note that they don't see it in quite the antagonistic way in which it has been read. I mean, at least if one takes their public utterances, long interviews and so on at face value, they think of themselves as engaged in a pluralistic, complicated dialogue with the European Court of Justice in which what they're doing is basically providing, if you like, input on what they think of as an absolutely crucial issue. They, they insist that they don't in general challenge the supremacy of the ECJ. It's just on this particular issue, given its huge significance, they feel entitled to make a ruling. It's a much more conciliatory language of European law as a, in you know, the political science sense, pluralistic body made up of different voices speaking to each other in a sustained dialogue. So seen from the point of view of the German court, and this may be in some senses an unrealistic view, but they think of it as part of the ongoing, if not fudge, then conversation around the structures and logics of European governance. Whether the COVID crisis and whether the urgency of Europe's fiscal problems permit that kind of you know, lawyers' conversation to go on is, I think, is the question that has to be put to them from the outside. How do they think that they're speaking to the Bundesbank? Because the judgment... I mean, it does say if X and Y doesn't happen, then the following things will have to happen. Is that also in their minds a kind of dialogue? Because it doesn't sound like a dialogue. It sounds like an instruction. Well, I think the Bundesbank is really collateral damage in all of this. I think the Bundesbank is the anchor through which the German court can speak to European-wide policy because they can't directly address the ECB they do it by way of the, the German central bank. It's not, in fact, obvious, and it would, again, probably have to be litigated, what the Bundesbank is most bound to, whether it's bound to the German legal system, which would make it answerable to the Verfassungsgericht, or whether it's, in fact, as a member of the euro system, its primary loyalty lies there. And I think anyone had really ever imagined this being put to the test in quite the way that it is right now. But that, I think, is the, the issue. On the whole, this judgment doesn't have really that much about central banking in it. Most of the action, as Shahin has made very clear, I think is really about legal structure above all. I think that it's interesting that you can look at it and say that actually, in a specific sense to do with the ECB's action, they actually made it rather easy for the ECB to comply if it wished. It could simply, the ECB could simply issue proportionality judgment and then the Bundesbank would be free to carry on participating in the programme. And I think that Adam's very much right when he says it's part of a, a longer legal conversation. After all, the German court essentially said that Germany's ability to consent to future European integration was dependent on that integration being compatible with German basic law. And in the Lisbon decision, it said that it had to be compatible with German constitutional identity. So this judgment in this respect in terms of what's the status of European law in relation to the German constitution, absolutely isn't coming out of nowhere at all. I think that why it has had the 
potency that it has is because it's come in this particular political moment of the COVID crisis and because you could look at the way in which the court dealt with outright monetary transactions and indeed it first shuffling the quantitative easing decision off to the European Court of Justice in the first place as actually not wanting to have a confrontation at all. And now it chose at this moment to do so. And one interpretation of that might be that its target wasn't really the quantitative easing programme from 2015, but it was putting a marker down about the pandemic purchasing programme. Yeah, I mean, it brought the case back, the German Constitutional Court last year, in the midst of the really bitter dispute about the resumption of QE. And I think the view in Karlsruhe was that they had handed this case up the chain to the ECJ and the ruling of the ECJ was just perfunctory. They had basically taken an issue which the German court had deemed extremely serious, passed up the chain to the ECJ and the ECJ had then issued this sort of, it's a fudge, we all know it's a fudge, let's get on with it kind of a judgment into the teeth of the resumed highly politicised conversation in 2019, which we too easily forget, about the pivot back to QE that Draghi initiated as he was leaving the building, if you like, at the ECB. And I think it's to everyone's embarrassment that it's returned. I mean, this case was supposed to be heard. The judgment was supposed to be delivered in the third week of March in the middle of the COVID-19 panic. And so I think it's considerable embarrassment in many ways for the court that it should have returned when it has. And they have done, Voskula, in all of his, this is the presiding judge, in all of his personal introductory statements and the TV's interviews he's done around this, has done as much as he can to soften the impact of this in the immediate moment. But they do their view. I mean, as Helen's saying, it comes down to a sense on the part of the German constitutional lawyers that the European constitution is inherently pluralistic, that it doesn't have a settled structure that it is about an ongoing conversation between the ECJ and national constitutional courts. And, you know, the Europeans have brought a case against the French constitutional court for ultraviaries actions. He's even admitted that he has calculated the possibility that the ECJ and the commission may bring a suit against the German government. They don't shrink from this. They think of it as part of the constructive elaboration of European law. Adam, one more quick question on the court itself. So it's in dialogue with the European court. The finance ministry is in the dock. The Bundesbank is being held hostage or collateral damage. But as you've also written, it views itself and has been seen as a kind of citizen's court. It's an activist court. And it does speak at some level for what it conceives as democracy. And part of this judgment is about democratic control over otherwise unaccountable institutions. It is speaking, isn't it, for citizens as well as in the name of the law. Oh, it absolutely is. This is a one has to understand that about the German Constitutional Court. It is one of the anchors of the success of the German democratic model since 1949. And now, you know, in the standings of international constitutional jurisprudence, probably outranks the US Supreme Court, which has become so overtly politicized. The Karlsruhe has a strong self-consciousness as a shaper of a very contemporary, explicitly comparative. It's not like the American Supreme Court really narrowly focused on the interpretation of the American Constitution. The German Supreme Court scans the entire world of jurisprudence and acts, as it were, as a lead driver of, yes, a modern constitutional jurisprudence with regard to issues, yes, from the point of view of stabilizing democracy within the EU, but it also issued 
a very important ruling on the right to euthanasia. It's had huge interventions on issues like childcare. It reaches deep into the structure of the German welfare state and arbitrates on the basis of an expansive conception of human dignity and human rights built into the German constitution of 49. And, and one of the explosive things about this judgment is that it anchors its claims about the ECB. So it links this highly artificial distinction between monetary and economic policy to an absolutely fundamental insistence on democratic rights of the individual. I mean, it's really, you know, an extraordinary kind of stretch across, you know, the details of economic policy down to absolutely basic uh, human rights, individual and inamiable. There's nothing, there's no constitutional fix. There's nothing you could do legislatively in Germany, or at least not at all easily, to circumvent this judgment. And Shaheen, do you think it does therefore cut across some national boundaries in that this is an argument not just in the name of the German basic law, but in the name of democracy about an institution or a set of institutions, independent central banks, that many people for many different reasons for quite a long time have felt have slipped free from democratic control? Does that bit of the judgment speak to people outside Germany? I think it speaks to people outside Germany on other uh, grounds than the control over technocratic institutions. It speaks to people outside Germany because it raises a fundamental question about the legal order in Europe. Is Europe fundamentally the embryo of a federal state or not? And we've left this question open, which has allowed this dance of the judges between Luxembourg and Karlsruhe to carry on for the last 30 years and this conversation to take place. And, And the German judges think of this conversation as one where member states, subject of international public law, help to frame the conversation around the treaty that ties them together. But they don't view a nascent political and legal order in in creation. And I think that reminds me of a debate that Adam and and Wolfgang Streck had a few years ago around the potential creation of a European Volk. I think behind these legal issues, there is the question mark about whether Europe is a polity in construction with its own constitutional and legal order, or whether it is the sum of upstart folks that are in cooperation through this legal dance. I think it speaks to, to the rest of Europe because of that. And it speaks to the rest of Europe because of another issue which has created R in, in the legal community in Europe, which is the fact that the German constitutional court is creating a massive precedent that might be exploited in other countries in particular in Hungary or Poland, where these constitutional courts might then challenge the European legal legal order and and potentially unravel it altogether by basically following in the footsteps of the German constitutional court and challenging European legal decisions. So I think it speaks to Europe in these two different ways. One is the fundamental question about the European constitutional nature, and the other is potential future challenges coming from other parts of Europe. I think on the first point, Shaheen, as well, it isn't just a constitutional issue that it's speaking to. It's the underlying democratic authority issue to the constitution, because the German court in this judgment, not for the first time, has said that in its view, the only democratic authority comes from the member states, that the member states then can legitimate the conferral of powers on the European institutions. And if you go back to the Maastricht and the Lisbon judgments, it's pretty much said the court that there was no way in which there could ever be, which is a pretty strong claim to make, European democratic legitimation, that there could not be sufficient homogeneity between the European people 
for them to act as the source of democratic authority. And that is a, a fundamental existential question, I think, for the European Union, whether the citizens of the European Union accept that or whether they do actually want to themselves collectively as a single people ultimately authorise the political institutions of the European Union. Yeah. And that relates to a question that money and the monetary union is forcing upon us and goes back to a conversation that has taken place in, in the US and why people refer now to us you know, going through a, a Hamiltonian moment. In the US, you could have made the exact same claim about the impossibility of a federal government, a federal constitution, and, and, and an American people, and yet it occurred, and it occurred after Hamilton established the foundation of a common taxation, common debt, and then uh, common representation. So, so maybe the constitutional court is forcing upon us a Hamiltonian moment that will help settle these deeply political issues. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Adam, to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, because seen from my perspective, there still does seem to be a fundamental question here about the role of central banks. And as you said, Central banks have changed their primary role in the global political economy. Their independence, I mean, this is putting it too crudely, but it was originally premised on the idea that they were to rein in democratic governments that had a tendency towards inflationary forms of policy because they were trying to get elected. And now central banks' primary role is to guard against the forces of deflation because of the timidity in some respects of democratic governments. And certainly from a German perspective, as I understand it, that is a huge shift. I mean, that means that central banks have changed their character while retaining their form. Yes, exactly. I think this is another area where the court has really cut into a fudge and <laughs> revealed its true makeup. I mean, the, the ECB will tell you, along with other central bankers, that their mandate has remained unchanged. It's price stability. Except we all know that once upon a time that meant desperately struggling through quite painful measures. And in fact, the pain was necessary to develop the credibility of the central bank to hold prices down and to ensure that inflation didn't accelerate. Whereas now, the reason why the ECB finds itself subject to this ruling is that it engaged in extraordinarily... I mean, the, EC, the ECB's QE that we're talking about is not common or garden QE. This was in the end, the largest of the classic you know, phase of QE starting in 2008. It was an absolutely massive bond buying program. And they were doing this because in 2015, there was a very serious risk of sliding into an openly deflationary situation. Apart from that, we also know, of course, that the central banks have assumed extraordinarily extensive role also in financial stability, which is a double-edged sword because financial stability sounds good. But on the other hand, the way that you achieve it is by essentially guaranteeing the profits. And with that, also the excessive remuneration of the people in the financial services industry, the fat cats. And so the central banks, even in the developed world, and this isn't even to speak of their counterparts in the emerging markets, have taken on 
much more extensive roles than they had in the 1970s when this model that we take for granted of an independent central bank was shaped. And what the court is in a sense registering is the obsolescence of that model and the need, I think, to talk about quite you know, clearly re-legitimizing and redefining a role for central banks. That for me is another way in which one might think of this judgment as in fact being you know, actually stimulating an important modern conversation that we need to be having, um, not just a question about Europe's constitution. I mean, I largely agree with you, Adam, but the question of the central bank independence can get used both ways because, as you said, what that meant in the past was that central banks were independent from democratically elected governments in deciding monetary policy. But actually, what the court is effectively saying about the European Central Bank in this case is that it acted independently from the treaties that had been authorised by the member states. So it's not actually raising the question of, well, how do we go about having democratic legitimation of monetary policy? So there seem to me to be two different issues. There's the question of, like, what do we think the purpose of monetary policy is? And the idea that it can any longer be about simply the pursuit of price stability is inappropriate to the political circumstances in which we are in. But given the political circumstances that we are in, then it does raise a question of, well, who gets to decide what the monetary response to that should be? Because in this instance, the answer was Mario Draghi keeping a very firm eye on what the German Chancellor and the German Finance Minister would tolerate. And I think that nobody would think that actually that was a very satisfactory way of answering the question of how monetary policy should be decided, not least because it involved taking much more seriously the preferences of one member state over other member states in the monetary union, and it was done outside any any kind of space for democratic political discourse. So you could actually run a kind of argument that says that the court is the one that's asking for some greater democratic consideration of what the purpose of monetary policy is here. But it's also, it has to be said, and somehow we've managed to avoid saying this so far, right, that in a sense, the thing that sticks in the gullet most is the specific objection, the specific complaint that's being brought. Because these general issues of the mandate and the, the central bank's responsibility towards the democratic public is being tested with regard to the issue of whether or not small German savers were in some sense victimized by a program which was aimed at avoiding deflation, which would have hit the weak southern periphery of the eurozone grievously. Right? That's, in fact, the substantial issue at stake here out of which then the court has spun a whole series of formal issues. But they chose to take cases, and the cases that were expedited up the German chain were to do with essentially German conservatives complaining that too much was being done to assist weaker Eurozone members. I mean, to really sharpen this, imagine a Spanish or an Italian court in 2008 or 2011 hearing a case in which unemployed Italians or Spaniards brought to the court's attention the fact that the ECB seemed to be giving disproportionately large amounts of attention to the inflation concerns of the German board members at the ECB. And of course, that never happened. And if it had happened, everyone in Germany would have shrugged and said, well, that's what independence of central banks is for, is to ignore those kind of complaints. Whereas all of a sudden in this moment, because what's at stake is the inflation anxiety or the low interest rate anxiety of German savers, this is all of a sudden a matter for the most serious uh, consideration by the highest court in the land. 
I think you're absolutely right. And you could also argue one case that could have gone, I think, to the European Court of Justice would have been a Greek case about Greece's exclusion from the quantitative easing programme back in 2015. Once you open this up, there's all kinds of cases that can be brought about the distributive consequences of monetary policy and about which member states the ECB's monetary policy ends up serving better than others. And Adam, in the background of the politics of this, if this court does see itself in some respects as a guardian of German democracy, and you've written about this repeatedly, the AFD originally was a savers party, right? It was the party of German pensioners and their savings. The founder, Lucca, was in the court. The court was answering to one of the founders of the AFD in this judgment. And the implication somewhere in the background of this is if you don't tackle this, you leave our democracy at the mercy of these people? Or is that putting too much of a political stamp on it? No, that's not how I would read it at all. No, I mean, I think the the court's position is that their objections are legitimate. Their objections need to be heard. But if their objections aren't heard legitimately, they will be heard anyway, you know, that there is a danger to democracy. I think we're saying the same thing, maybe from opposite angles. There's a danger to democracy by implicitly delegitimizing these kinds of complaints because of the people who are making them, you then get the rise of the AFD. I'm not sure the court is taking a view on that. It was a broad coalition, and this is, as it were, the respectable, look, is no longer a member of the AFD, this is the respectable wing. No, I mean, I would read it as the fact that the German Constitutional Court deemed these sorts of complaints, even when made by these kind of people, to be a legitimate and important trigger for this kind of action. I don't think there's a meta argument here that this needs to be heard because otherwise you're going to get some sort of populist insurgency. I think it's an expression of its basically siding with. If you think of the range of witnesses they called last summer, somebody commented that it was as though the court had, in adjudicating an issue to do with carbon taxes, had called only car manufacturers and oil industrialists. The court has shown conspicuous bias towards the conservative, anti-inflationary, anti-QE, anti-Draghi perspective in German politics. It has not given an equal voice to those voices in Germany itself, which supported the policy. And as Helen said, the basis of the judgment is that this goes against the treaties. And you've all said that what this judgment does is that it means that a fudge is much harder to sustain. It's kind of blown a hole in it. But there's no appetite, is there, at the moment for thinking about new treaties? I mean, we know that that's the nightmare scenario, isn't it, for the EU? I think that new treaties, I mean, there's many reasons why they're difficult. You've only got to look like what happened with the the fallout from the Lisbon Treaty in a number of countries' democratic politics. But anything that now involves being sorted out via the treaty, a treaty change, runs also into the difficulty of the relationship between the Eurozone states and the non-Eurozone states. Um, This was obviously an issue that caused problems in regard to the fiscal compact, this European stability mechanism, which were done outside the formal EU structure. In the case of the fiscal compact to deal with Cameron's completely redundant attempt at a a veto. But I I think if you look at the Franco-German proposal that came yesterday for the recovery fund, dealing head on with the problem of having a treaty that has to cover both Eurozone states and non-Eurozone states, When you are proposing for essentially a Eurozone recovery fund using the EU budget, so that has to include non-Eurozone member states, is another level of complication. So 
in one sense, it makes it necessary to confront the fudge. But on the other hand, I think the reasons for continuing with some level of fudge, particularly in regard to the broader European Union, haven't actually gone away. Shaheen, what do you think is going to happen next? What's going to be the next point where these questions become unavoidable? Well, the fudge is always the best bet in Europe. However, I don't think we should accept to turn any treaty changes into the sort of you know incredible obstacle it has become. In reality, over the last few years, we have changed the treaty several times. It's only because of the UK's reluctance that the fiscal compact was not a change in the EU treaty and became an intergovernmental treaty. Otherwise, it would have been a change in the EU treaty. We've actually modified the Article 136 of the European Treaty to create the European Stability Mechanism. We've then signed the ESM Intergovernmental Treaty, which required the same unanimity of Euro area member states than a normal uh, ratification would have created. So I don't know if the hurdles are so high to actually change the treaties. That being said, I think the general tendency is always to avoid it if we can. And I think what the Constitutional Court in Germany has told us is that we cannot anymore. And so the hope the hope I have is that we have initiated the conversation now that will lead to profound institutional changes and eventually to treaty reforms. They might come in several light touches. They don't need to come in a big bang. But I think that has started and, and has become inevitable. Adam, where do you think the next cliffhanger is going to be? I think probably the three-month cutoff date for the Bundesbank is probably a key moment here. As far as we know, the ECB is determined not to respond directly. So it'll come down to a Bundesbank response. As far as the German government is concerned, they too also seem to be sort of somewhat dragging their feet and stonewalling. It's worth saying that the German Constitutional Court as an activist court is also used to having its judgments only incompletely translated into policy. And there's a long list of rulings by the German Constitutional Court towards which the German government is only in partial compliance so I think with this one, with this three-month timeline and with this specific instruction to the Bundesbank, which has shown every indication of wanting to comply with the court, they've built in a tougher safety catch than is generally the case with some of their rulings. You know, huge rulings on social policy don't get translated into practice, sometimes for years, if ever. This doesn't look like one of those kind of rulings. And so I think that three-month timeline is, is, uh, is rather important. I agree with Adam that you know what happens in the next three months is going to be very interesting. It's pretty clear that the ECB is not going to respond. I don't think the Bundesbank is going to respond either, although that could be the beginning of a fudge. So a Bundesbank response that would be implicitly endorsed by the ECB, and therefore the German Constitutional Court could you know, accept that new proportionality assessment as something that allows the uh, the Bundesbank to carry on. But if you look precisely at the ruling, the ruling asks more than a set of explanations. It asks for a new decision. and That's very unlikely to come. I think the third option, and that links, links back to the, to the constitutional debate, is that basically there is a political response to this set of legal question. And that basically the German government, in particular as it takes over the presidency of the council in June, basically responds to the German constitutional court with the beginning of an agenda for deep institutional and constitutional reform in Europe. There was, since the European elections in May 2019, the beginning of a conversation for a conference for the future of the EU. And I think if I were the German government, I would use this conference on the future of the EU to basically kick the institutional and constitutional discussion 
can to this conference and implicitly answer the German constitutional court this way. And I think that would allow to carry on the fudge in the conversation for a while, that would allow the Bundesbank to continue to participate in the program and still provide some answer to the, to the German ruling. And Helen, unless I've missed it, the markets weren't spooked by this judgment, were they? But is there a point at which they would be properly spooked? Well, they were spooked. The spread on Italian bonds went up after the judgment, but then the spread came down yesterday and continued to carry on down this morning in response to the Franco-German proposal. I think we've got to think about this as having two different paths now. One is about what happens to the ECB. And in some sense, I do still think that the pandemic purchasing program, which I think if you read the judgment from the court, is at some point in the future clearly going to a bring another case in Germany or more than one case in Germany and is going to fall foul of the court in the same way or even more so really than than the initial QE did. And that any hope, I think, that the way out of that difficulty with what the European Central Bank was doing was to essentially provide for greater fiscal surveillance over Italy through the European Stability Mechanism, that hope, I think, is, is really gone from a German point of view with the politics of the pandemic crisis in Italy. It's just incredibly difficult to see how an Italian government is going to accept being in the, the European Stability Mechanism. So that outlet of making what the ECB does more palatable by putting tighter restrictions on Italy's fiscal manoeuvring, I think, is gone. And that is, as I read it, why Merkel has now been willing to not entirely back what Macron wanted to do, but move in significant direction towards what Macron has been wanting for some time. I think the potential fault line there, though, that may well come to the surface quite quickly is this issue of using the existing European Union budget and its seven-year framework as the essential tax resource that backs the debt that the European Commission would issue, because that involves now really having to confront the issue of having a European Union that is multi-currency and trying to reform the Eurozone in a way that makes it work better whilst needing the consent of the non-Eurozone states to not least, obviously, given their awkward relations over other issues, Poland and Hungary. But at least the UK isn't part of it. <laughs> <laughs> From the European point of view, yeah. it's one complication. I mean, I know we are sort of not fully out yet, but well, we are, but you know what I mean? No, and I, I think that one way of looking at this would be to say that some of the UK's difficulties or why that they were accelerated came out of the Eurozone crisis, the first version of the Eurozone crisis and that was conflicts that are generated by Britain's position as a as a non-euro member but also having the offshore financial center of the eurozone now we're going to move into a different version of the eurozone's stresses that is also going to have to deal with this issue between euro members and non-euro members but it's going to play out in a rather different way because it's going to be about using the budget rather than the issue of the financial center london being the financial center Adam, Shaheen and Helen are all prolific writers about the current crisis. If you go to our show notes, you can find links to some of their latest thoughts. We'll also tweet them at tppodcast underscore. Now as a bonus, that conversation with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. I caught up with them last week and I started by asking Ed how his podcast politics life balance was going. 
Well, look, I'm really, I mean, lockdown is a sort of challenge for everybody. I'm trying to do my job as Shadow Business Secretary. It's quite nice to be able to do the podcast, sort of exploring ideas while being a serving front bench politician, because it allows me to sort of think a bit more laterally. That's what the podcast does. And then there's also the matter of trying to do my bit looking after our children. So the combination of those things is, is a, uh, is, I would say, a challenge. I can't believe how busy he's been with the shadow business secretary job. If, did, you, did, you, did you think it was a non-job? I did think it was a non-job. I thought all you had to do is, is sort of sit there saying, well, I wouldn't do it like that. If I was in government, I wouldn't be doing it like that. And yet you're in meetings the whole time. You're Zooming with people. You're in the House of Commons. He's feeling a little bit, you're feeling a little bit left out. You're feeling he's leaving a little, feeling a little bit left out. A little bit. So when I listen to your podcast, you're about the new ideas, like the way you could think about politics differently. And some of them seem quite wishful, I think it's fair to say, and some of them seem pretty realistic. But there's always also that feeling that um, we're waiting for the moment where this stuff really kicks in. So when this crisis started, did you both feel, well, some of these ideas might actually now happen well it was ex- exactly that the the original idea for the podcast was i was feeling sort of as glum and as depressed as anybody else about trump and brexit and i thought well what what are the ideas for coming out the other side of this we've talked about these ideas for the last couple of years and and now we're in this situation where we've we've got hundreds of ideas that people could take off the shelf and that things that are being talked about or enacted. Um, we did an episode a couple of years ago about homelessness in Finland and the way that they've solved it is basically to give homeless people somewhere to live. And that's been the government's response to rough sleeping in this pandemic. And there, there are lots of other things from UBI to a lot of the environmental ideas that we've talked about, which now seem like they could have a shot of going somewhere. And I think I think it was Milton Friedman said that when a crisis hits, it's the ideas that are lying around that get picked up, and or, or the podcast. Well, or the podcast. Said. He didn't quite say that, but um, and I think there's something about comparing the 2008 financial crisis with today, where I think there are more ideas out there about what sort of building back better might look like, and I also, you know. We're still in the midst of this crisis, obviously, but I I do get a sense, and certainly this is true when you look at the opinion polling, that that people people don't think the best thing we can do is just go back to the way things were before. I think there's a sense about you know how we value public sector workers and caring people in caring professions, and who turns out is an essential worker about insecurity at work, indeed about sort of climate and the climate emergency. I think there's just a whole set of issues that have been kind of raised by this moment that I do think people aren't going to want things to go back to exactly as they were before. And do you find, so in in your new round of meetings, now that you're back, fully back, in that form of politics, does that feel different too? So there's a kind of general atmosphere at the moment. There's a real sort of, I mean, people are scared, but they're also curious. And there is a feeling no one really knows like what life will be like in 18 months' time. But at the hard, cold face of politics, is there that sense too? Politicians have that kind of appetite? Yes, I think the challenge is to do both things at once, which is to deal with the immediate crisis. And, you know, in my in my case, it's the businesses that are about to go bust and the help that they need. 
and then to think beyond the crisis. And I think it's trying to do both of those things. And that is a constant challenge, honestly. Um, But I think it's incredibly important. So I want to ask you about your most recent episode, uh, which is really interesting. I recommend it to anyone who hasn't heard it. It's with um, a Dutch. He's Dutch, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Bregman. Um, And he's written a book. It's kind of the, the new sapiens, right? It's called Humankind. That's a part of a hopeful history. Yeah, like we are kind. We're much nicer than we thought we are. Um, And I I particularly noticed it because I've got we've got a new podcast out, a series of history of ideas about the big ideas behind politics. And I start with Hobbes and Hobbes is his big villain. So he thinks Hobbes had us all marked down as nasty, brutish and short and mean to each other. And He's he's not just he's an optimist, but he thinks that you can reread all of these famous experiments that show people behaving badly and realize that actually they were misreported and you know, Lord of the Flies doesn't turn out like that and so on. You were both enthused, so I want to ask you this the slightly cynical question. Do you really buy it? Yes. I mean, do you re- Yes. <laughs> Definitely. Do you? Definitely. Yeah. I, I got sent this book by the publisher three months ago and the the person publishing it said, "You, I think you're really going to feel uplifted by this book. And, and, and yeah, I really do buy it. You see, I think it was quite revelatory for me because so floods hit my constituency last November and it was the most extraordinary outpouring of community spirit and people looking after each other. And in a way, it's been a, it was a microcosm of what we've seen during this crisis. And I think... In a way, our default assumption is to think that's a kind of unusual reaction, which somehow, you know, is is the exception and, and, and somehow doesn't reflect what people are really like. I think that does sort of reflect what people are really like. But I, th- I suppose what I feel about the Bregman book is the question is what institutions do you build around people? What assumptions do you make? What kind of capitalism, I suppose, do you have? And what kind of behaviour does it push people into? So, and I think in a way, the crisis kind of strips back and reveals what people are really like. But don't you think it's also stripped back and revealed what the state is really like? That, I mean, so this is going to be my sort of Hobbes defence, that he, he wasn't saying that we were all nasty, but he was saying that in the absence of coercive power, we really do struggle to turn our better instincts into lasting community life. And... This crisis has also shown us everywhere in the world, in a way that, you know, people who talked about globalisation and being beyond the nation state and so on, that we all still live absolutely in political societies where, when it comes to the crunch, the coercive power of the state is the decisive actor. I mean, you and after all, you, you know, it's, it's, it's your line of business, right? It's... You are still in the coercion business, aren't you? I mean, I used to think of myself as more of a podcaster, but I get what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was, as I said that, I thought, I wonder if Jeff thinks he's uh, in the coercion business. <laughs> Sounds a bit weird. Well, well I suppose... That, uh, but, I, but, hey. yeah, I suppose <laughs> but I mean, I suppose maybe one way, one thing that this highlights is, and I think this is going to end up rethinking the role of the state and the private sector and the state and business, because because it's once again a moment when the state has had to step in. I mean, not just in a coercive sense, but in a supportive sense. I mean, right, the the rescue by the state, you know, the, the notion that, you know, the state just needs to stand aside and business will succeed and workers will be all right and all that. In a sense, this crisis has shown in, in kind of a very graphic way how wrong that is, because businesses, for totally understandable reasons, just as the state have been asking businesses to close, the businesses have been asking the state, you need to, you need to kind of keep us going here. I suppose my way of thinking about what your, your really important question is, 
yes, you need the state, but I think I think this is going to lead to a kind of redrawing of some of the boundaries because we're thinking it's going to make us think differently about about that relationship and the role the state plays. So you've talked about some of the ideas that people are talking about now. There's a huge conversation about UBI. You, you've talked about it on your podcast quite a lot and so on. Is there some idea back from the archive where you think, oh my God, the time is now. This is the one. Interesting question. I suppose my answer would be fundamentally the sort of Green New Deal idea. Because, you know, what did Roosevelt do in the 1930s? He recognised the scale of the challenge of the Great Depression. He put 20 million Americans or more back to work. And he created kind of quite important sort of institutions of the future. It's sort of what happened after 45 in a way here. And, you know, what is the contemporary equivalent of the New Deal in a recession that is going to be the worst for 300 years? It's got to be that we've got to advance our climate goals, meet the climate emergency, put people back to work, build back better, improve air quality, reforesting. There's, there's just a huge amount to be done. So I think... I think if anything is at the centre of what recovery looks like and what, what the sort of future looks like based on things we've done, I would say it's around this idea of the Green New Deal. A crisis like this demonstrates how quickly ideas can be implemented as well. Of course, it's extraordinary times, but I mentioned the rough sleeping before. The government's target on eliminating rough sleeping was five years and they managed to get everybody off the streets pretty much within two days. So there's, I think there's cause for optimism in seeing how quickly change can happen and things can be done differently when, when the will is there. And one last one, you, you've talked a lot at various points about different ways of, of, different ways of actually doing democracy, right? Deliberative and all of that. Ed, you're in a virtual House of Commons. You talked about it this week. Uh, you know, you're going to vote yeah. online for the first yeah, time. Yeah, I did. So the thing I the thing I haven't yet seen is a big appetite for doing democracy differently. So people talk about all these different policy options. Sortition, definitely. Yeah, you want to go for it. We want we want some sortition. What do we want? Sortition. Randomness. Sortition. When do we want it? At a random point in time. Uh, uh, um, uh, <laughs> Can you change all of these, have all these exciting new policy ideas and not fundamentally change the way you do democracy too? Because that's always been my feeling that like people want to, they want to change everything and then they want somehow democracy to be this comforting, familiar thing that they, you know, reminds them of the 1990s or whenever they were happy. And I yes, think, think we've right. got to radicalise the whole thing. Definitely. Do democracy differently. Definitely. What's What's top of your list? All of it. Uh, local, deliberative, international, workplace, uh, random. Funnily enough, this week, our episode is about the Climate Assembly, because, you know, there's been this deliberative process of the Climate Assembly, which is just about to conclude. So I definitely agree with you. I tell tell you what's really interesting about what you've just asked, and it's, it's true. In these opinion polls where people are asked, do you want to go back to the way things were? Do you want a different economy? People say they want something different. Part of the task of the coming months is to is to is to find ways of engaging people on those questions beyond sort of you know Westminster politics definitely and and in a world where there's going to be obviously still quite a lot of restrictions and so so I'm completely with you on that yeah because you can already see the frustration as we come out of lockdown that people are starting to go back to that who are these people to tell us what to do and so on and so on well engage people in the process then I mean shut totally. it, shut it down according to the experts but open it up according to democracy totally okay good i'm glad we agree about that we agree fantastic thanks so you can get much much more on reasons to be cheerful with ed and jeff 
And you sounded pretty cheerful there, David. Uh, yeah. Reasons to be Cheerful really is our favourite other politics podcast, and you can get it, as you know, wherever you get your podcasts. We've got an extra episode of Talking Politics this week. I'm talking to the writer Annie Zaidi, who's based in Mumbai, about her new book, which is the winner of the Nine Dots Prize. The book is about Annie's life, it's about home, identity and belonging, and the conversation is about life in India for Annie now. It's amazing. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Hello. Are you still there? Are we still recording? Hello.